Hello, and welcome to the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry, where we'll be speaking with and interviewing the best talent in the business, taking not only a deep dive into what it takes to put on a world-class show, but also life on the road and sharing experiences that span the globe, highlighting the people that are responsible for making your favorite artists look and sound great. My name is Matt Kanzi, and your host on this podcast is Chris Kanzi, a 40-year veteran in the live music touring industry. Over the years, Chris has traveled the globe several times over and has escalated through the ranks, bringing him to the top of his profession. He has established hundreds, if not thousands, of connections with other industry professionals, artists, and musicians. This podcast is your backstage pass to what happens behind the scenes and on the road when traveling and working with some of the world's top musicians. So sit back and enjoy. Hey, brother Chris, how's it going, man? I'm good, Matt. I'm good. How are you? I, I see you've got, uh, you know, because we can see each other. You've got a flannel on. What's 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 going on? You, I do. Uh, well, it's mid-August up here in Connecticut. And, you know, even though it's not New Orleans, um, you know, we expect it to be warm and humid. But the past three or four days, it's been quite, you know, rainy and chilly and actually pleasant to sleep. But, um, yeah, other than that, it's a little bit of a cooler snap going on here. Nice, Here's some... Nice. Uh, Thunder going on in your background. What's uh, what's yeah, up? Yeah, uh, it's a typical New Orleans Caribbean thunderstorm with uh, lots of uh, lots of vertical water and lightning and thunder and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, plenty of good water. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a, just just a, another day waiting out COVID nineteen. Oh yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Well, thank God we have uh, this podcast to kind of break up the monotony. So it's been uh, so far really great. This is our, I believe, number eleven. And it's really been amazing for me to be able to be a fly on a wall with some of the awesome guests we have. And today I am super stoked to hear what this gentleman has to say. Um, but I'm, you know what, I'm going to let you do the introduction here, but it's a, you know, a truly a special guest, a, a real vet in the uh, concert touring industry. So Chris, why don't you let us know uh, who we got on today? Yeah, well, you know, today the, we, we've got a guy that I'm really looking forward to talking to. It's someone that I've known of. Uh, since I was 15, you know, when uh, when I first started paying attention to live concerts and actually paying attention and, and noticing things. Um, this guy is a 40-year veteran in our industry, uh, lighting some of the biggest bands in the world. And uh, he's a, an award-winning. He won the Parnelli Visionary Award in, in 2014. And uh, he's a very successful businessman as well in industry, uh, you know, owns a special effects company, which we'll, we'll talk about. Um, so I'd like to welcome my, my friend, Howard Ungerleiter. Hello, Howard. Hi, Kenzie brothers. How are you doing today? It's <laughs> nice to uh, be sitting here chatting on this uh, beautiful day up here in Toronto where the weather is amazing. Yeah, good, good. Well, it's, it's, it's so really cool to have you on. Uh, um, but, you know, I want to get into things. Um, the first one, first thing I want to talk about is, uh, you know, you've been working for Rush your whole career, um, going back to 1974 um, uh, and uh, starting as a tour manager and, and obviously your, 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 your creative director. But, you know, you live in Toronto, but what a lot of people don't know or realize is you're an American, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'm actually a dual citizen. So I am American born in New York City, and uh, 
you know, sort of transplanted myself in Canada in 1974. Nice, nice. You know, I've been here since then. And, and did you ever leave again or have you been living in the Toronto area since 1974? I've actually been living in Toronto. I mean, I, I left for, you know, four decades to go on tour. <laughs> so yeah, yeah you I did. sort of did leave, but um, my home base is here in Toronto, which I really, really love. And now, you know, being Canadian and American, I have the best of both worlds. Cool. So, so in 1974, um, you left uh, New York to go to Toronto and uh, that, that was to work for Rush, right? I mean, when, when you first, when you f first head up there, that, that was your, your reason for going there, right? A hundred percent. I was sent up here and um, I worked for a talent agency in New York, one of the biggest in the world, American Talent International, where I started basically as the, uh, the office boy and worked my way up from there to um, a junior agent and then became an agent and um, toured around the country with before Rush with many bands because I started that when I was um, thrown out of uh, university in 1971. Like physically like thrown out, out the door, landing on the sidewalk, knocking oh, no. the trash cans <laughs> over, that kind of thing? I was actually asked to leave. Yeah, can you please leave? You know, you've been very bad. And uh, I got caught up in a um, situation where we actually took a horse and um, put it in my van and drove it to these girls that were really pining for a horse. And they said, you know, if you could bring us a horse, you could have anything you want from us. And we all said, uh, we'll be right back. And that's what happened. I went out to a place where I saw these horses, not knowing what it was. And uh, we went there with some chain cutters, went there and we, we took the horse and brought it back three o'clock in the morning with um, a bed sheet over it. And I had to get it from, from this van. It was a, it was a pony and uh, getting it from the van up to a brownstone apartment on the second floor was uh, pretty hysterical because we had a white bed sheet over it. We were pushing it up the stairs at three in the morning. Luckily, there was no one to see this. Um, and we successfully uh, got it into our apartment where I had to put it in the bedroom. And we had taken the bed, the bed out and the girls were there and we presented it with these, to these girls. And going, here's your horse. It's all yours. Now let's have some fun. And they're like, well, we don't know what to do with this horse. We said, it's we got stuck with it. We had to let it sit there for about 24 hours. And I don't know if you've been around horses much, but um, not in this context, it has to go to the washroom quite a bit, you know, <laughs> and it's like it used our floor as the washroom. Oh, and, wow. you know, <laughs> it's not small. I mean, the, you know, the horse was small. Anyway, make a long story short. Um, I was booted out of school because I got involved. Police got involved. And then I guess when the shit hit the fan, I was uh, <laughs> booted out of the school and had to go find something else to do. Oh, wow. Well, so, so you were, you were, you were an agent. Yeah, I started, um, well, when I was in the university, you know, it was called Monmouth college at the time. Um, I was on the student activities council that we booked a lot of shows. Uh, 
and I got to meet the uh, the New York agents and the representatives of the bands when they would come in to, to do concerts. And I met this guy, Sean LaRoche, who was involved with many acts. I mean, the Who was, was one of them. And I always had his name and I knew where his office was. And I figured once I got booted out of school, I really had this desire to be, you know, in the music business somehow, you know, um, lighting and special effects and all that stuff were, that was a hobby that I had carried over from high school. I'm also a musician, so I played in a lot of local bands and I thought maybe it would be great to start off by trying to get a recording contract for my band, being young and naive, you know, I was about 18 at the time. And um, this guy, Sean LaRoche, who I had to sneak into his office after about two weeks of trying to see him. I actually snuck in when the secretary went to lunch because that's the only way I can get by that front desk. And I went right into his office and he was kind of freaked out that I was there. And he said, listen, you know, the fact that you made it here, sit down, what, what can I do for you? And I said, you know, I think I'd like to have a recording contract for my band that I'm playing in. And he stopped me right there and he goes, listen, he said, kid, you have no idea about this business. The fact that you're coming in here asking me to help you to get a recording contract, I should just throw you out right now. But you need to learn this business before you walk into a person's office like myself. So I said, okay, what do you have in mind? And he said, you have to have the loyalty and dedication to pursue this career and you have to learn about things. So I have a couple of friends who I'm going to give you some names and numbers. You go knocking on their door and you could use my name and tell them that you want a job, maybe sweeping floors, delivering coffee or something like that. And he sent me on my way with these names. I went to one of the you know, places. I got sort of ignored by a few, but this one place was called um, ATI, American Talent International. And there was a gentleman named Jeff Franklin who was the president. And he had two partners, Ira Blacker and Saul Safian. And they were at 888 7th Avenue, right across from Carnegie Hall. And basically I went up there, applied for a job and Three days later, I was in the mailroom working. Wow. That's how it first started. And, <laughs> <laughs> That's only the first start of many starts. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to bore people with these other stories about getting busted. And, and well, I mean, but, but eventually, you know, you know, things happened. And then you were, through ATI, you were recru recruited to go to Toronto to well, meet this young, unknown band called Rush to be their tour manager. And be, right? Yeah, well, before that, from 1971 to 74, I had to fly around the United States and basically visit promoters that didn't quite pay the bands properly and, you know, threaten them. <laughs> it's like, you, you were a heavy band. Yeah, well, I went down there to recoup money a lot of times. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of money put in paper bags and me on planes going back and forth. Oh, wow. And you know, uh, so yeah. I would, it was the cash industry for a long time. It, 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 was, yeah. the, it was the Wild West. It was like, you know, uh, you know, Wolf of Wall Street type stuff. So, <laughs> And who was and, the wolf in this story? Oh, there was many wolves in this story. Are you kidding? Um, I worked for a lot of them. And, you know, there was a lot of grandstanding of people, you know, people standing on their desks, screaming, you know, forcing promoters to buy dates. And uh, it was an education for me.
especially at lunchtime when everybody went to the Carnegie Tavern and have lunch. And then the lunch was just a liquid lunch. It was like Bloody Mary's oh, wow. for, for about an hour. And then we went back to work and it was kind of bizarre, but uh, it was kind of cool at the same time. You know, we traveled around in a lot of limos. I worked with bands like Fleetwood Mac, Savoy Brown, Deep Purple, uh, Rod Stewart, David Bowie, you know, I uh, worked with a lot of bands in the beginning. And then... Um, that was a great era for all those bands you just mentioned too. You know, I mean, oh, they were all they were all like kicking hard at that time. Oh, it was crazy. We we went out and we did a uh, a package tour tour with uh, Fleetwood Mac and Savoy Brown and Deep Purple all on the same bill. And back in those days, you can fly on a plane if you're going for more than sixty or seventy cities in a row. You all flew first class, and all your gear went on the plane as excess baggage. And you bought you yeah, bought these yeah. you bought these excursion tickets, which were amazing. And I remember we were, those days. You remember the days when we had to unload, palletize equipment, put it on the plane, get to the other side, take it off the plane, put it in rider trucks, and drive to the to the gig, yeah, set it up, yeah. and do it again. Wow, wow. So, so you you know, like you were saying, you 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 cut your teeth at at that point. You you, you had a firm understanding of you know what the industry was all about and. And so when you eventually made your way to Toronto, you, you know, you, you had your feet firmly on the ground. Well, I thought I did, you know, <laughs> they didn't even know I was coming. I mean, I, you know, I was sent up um, by uh, one of the partners of ATI, Ira Blacker, told me to go up there and make sure the band liked the agency. And that's what I did. I went up there and basically told them that I, I'm going to be your tour manager. I'm going to teach you how to tour because they had never really been on, on a major tour before. And I have been familiar with them for a few years. And I knew sort of the ins and outs, but we were all young. I, you know, I was maybe 21 at the time, 22. And we were all, you know, inventing the industry, you know, as we went. Wow. And so you, you got there, you, you started working. How, how long were you... Uh tour manager before you started doing lighting as well? Um, I started doing, like I was a tour manager. I was helping Blue Oyster Cult out a lot. When um, actually uh, Elliot Crow was the tour manager for Blue Oyster Cult. And Elliot was also the vice president of, of C-Factor, but he would go out as a tour manager. And a couple times he asked me if I could take his place because he couldn't because he had to do other things. And um, I filled in for him a few times and met a lot of people. So I was out there, you know, a bit before Rush. I did Brian Auger's Oblivion Express right before Rush, which was a nice, amazing jazz keyboard player. Oh, I remember actually, Brian, yeah. Yeah, he was, he taught Keith, uh, Keith Emerson how to play. Wow. And, you know, uh, I, I remember those days where, you know, the industry was in New York City in the 80s. I do remember it, that, you know, and it, it didn't really, LA didn't become like the hub until you know later in the 80s when you know hair metal started kicking in you know because that's when i moved to la in the late 80s but before that you know we we worked out of new york new york was yeah. the you know uh, yeah all the i mean all the major management companies were there yeah yeah i mean like you know la was uh you know a lot of the english bands loved to go to la i mean that was one of their their favorite places it was one of my favorite places actually you know you get to go there and and check out all these different places, you know, the rainbow. That was like oh, one of the, yeah. 
You know, that's the first. That's the first place I ever had laid eyes on you. Actually, was in the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember you. I, told I, I do. Me. I, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. Was that? So, yeah. So, we were so getting exciting. in a lot of trouble in that place. In the early yeah, we were. We were. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the stories. You know, Led Zeppelin loved L.A. and you know, yeah, the, the Riot House. You know, those are. Oh yeah, uh, you had people like Iggy Pop down there. You know, and uh, in the Hyatt House, you had Little Richard living upstairs, and then you'd run into him endlessly. It was kind of fun, you know. Mm. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so, uh, you know, I was sent up and basically walked into Rush's management office and said, hey, I'm here, uh, I'm the tour manager for Rush, and I'm here for you guys, and uh, I need 10 grand, <laughs> like right now. And I think they were all caught off guard because they didn't have any money. And they weren't expecting me to, to be there. You know, the agency sent me up and said, here are the managers, and they were two managers at the time, Ray Daniels and Vic Wilson. And when I walked in to the reception, um, I was meted by I was met by uh, Sheila Posner, who is their accountant, and they all had really strange faces when I walked in. Like you know, I was uh, I was the unexpected uh, guest. And uh, behind closed doors, I found out later, behind closed doors, they're like, just keep this guy happy and uh, let's figure this out. But you know, ten grand really didn't happen very quickly. And that's what I needed to get the things, you know, started. But luckily, so, so, I had. So I'm sorry. So, so where were Rush at that point? Was it their was it their first record, second record? Where this was their first album. Been? This was their, this was the Rush album. Okay. They had been out. They had done they had done some shows. Like I never met John Rutsey, the first drummer, because when I arrived in Canada, they were in between drummers. John Rutsey had left, and they were auditioning people for you know, that position because they had just signed this contract. And um, Donna Halper uh, at WMMS Radio in Cleveland was breaking the record. And uh, I mean, it was just gangbusters. When the, when the record first came on the airwaves in, in uh, 74, mm -hmm. I think it was even in uh, the end of when, when it came out. It may have been in the end of 73 before I worked for them. When it first came out, everybody thought it was Led Zeppelin's new album. Oh, wow. So phone lines were lighting up and, you know, it was crazy. And, uh, you know, the this thing just exploded and, and, and it happened fast because uh, Rush went from playing a few, like from the clubs, which I never did the clubs with Rush. And when I when I arrived, they had done some dates in Michigan and some, some U.S. dates that I hadn't been on, and but they hadn't done a major tour. And our first major tour was opening for Uriah Heep at that time were massive and they were selling out like, you know, 14, 15,000 people a night. And our, our first show was in Pittsburgh at the Civic Arena. Oh, wow. It was actually the, f the first time they opened the roof and they couldn't close it. Oh. <laughs> I'd only seen that roof open once. I was doing a, a show in there. <laughs> Everybody knows how awful that place is with, you know, all the cherry it pickers was. and the diesel smoke and you're, you're, you're got a headache and it's just awful. But I, I, I was doing a, a load out there and as soon as the rigging was done, they started opening the roof for a Grateful Dead show that was going in it the next day. And, and uh, it was amazing. Yeah. But I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones who got to see the videotape of, uh, of, of that building imploding <laughs> as they took oh, it yeah. down. One of the worst venues. Uh, well, yeah, and, and that was for, another business. Yeah. That, that was a crazy venue. And you know what? When they first opened that roof, because it was the first time they did it on that Uriah Heap show, and it was hot, muggy, the building was sweltering. 
And when that roof opened, and the days of ground support, Chris, so you don't have to worry about rigging. Oh, of course. Yeah. And uh, when that roof opened and that fresh air came in, the Pittsburgh fresh air rushed in and it was nice and cool and the humidity just left that building. It was pretty amazing. You know, it was pretty amazing. But then nice. again, then, then they had a hard time figuring out how to close it. And it took them quite a while to figure out how to close it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the, 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 those days, you know, those early days of Rush, I think the first time I saw them, I believe, well, if my first time I ever paid attention to Rush was, I, I would think, uh, All the World's a Stage when mm -hmm. they came out, and I think that was 76, and then I'd seen every show after that, whether it be, uh, you know, Farewell to Kings, probably through... Uh, the big money record or whatever the record with big money was on. Right. Um, but, you know, talking, let's talk about lighting a little bit. I mean, I love lighting. That's the first love I had for this industry. You know, I, I had, yeah. you know, I owned steel par 64s and I used to carry them around in the back of my, my Datsun pickup truck. <laughs> I used to love lighting and, 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 you know, the first time I ever noticed lighting was at a rush show. You know, uh, you know, you know, for me, lights were, you put a light on so you can see somebody, you know, that yeah. was so you can illuminate so the audience can see them. But you, you took it in a different direction. You were lighting air. The first time I ever yeah. saw somebody light air. Um, <laughs> but you used to put these Lecos on the floor, like, you know, by the drum riser. And you know, like there was this, you know, you know, temples of syrinx would kick in, you know, and and these Lecos would come on and one would go through Getty and one would go through Alex. And, and I was just like, wow lighting yeah. lighting is so cool so you know i i solely owe it to you for me you know falling in love with lighting you know i have to say you know uh, and uh you know i started putting lights behind the band and not only in front of the band you know so you, you were, were lighting air i appreciate you know? that thank you yeah thanks a lot i mean that's pretty amazing um that you uh picked up on all that i just love uh, playing with lighting fixtures. And in the beginning, when I first started, I didn't really have the luxury of having um, my own system. We were playing in theaters that had these, you know, in-house piano boards, like the old style theaters, these big dimmers that you'd have to lock into place. You'd have x-rays overhead and uh, you had red, blue, green. And if you're lucky, amber, you would have a psych behind you that you could uplight and that was about it. So you would just be doing washes and you would sit behind this huge control panel, which was a bunch of levers that you'd have to lock down. And sometimes places like the Michigan Palace, I'd need stagehands next to me, like two or three guys. And I'd be calling out handle numbers to them so they could lock them in place. So when I threw the master cue with a big lever, it was like, it was like out of the Frankenstein movie. You'd have to throw this lever up and then you would do your scene changes and it was, Quite amazing. And when I first when I first started doing lighting, I never had uh, had called spotlights before. And I was taught how to call spotlights by a stagehand, an IATSE stagehand in uh, Portland, uh, Oregon. And that was the first time. And I really enjoyed doing that. And over the years, I tried to explore as much as I could with theatrical lighting. So the first few rush tours when I did get the chance to use my own lighting, I spent some time in Washington DC area where I met this guy named Tim Pace who worked at a club called Cellar Door and uh, with another gentleman named Mike Hirsch, which we dubbed wow. uh, Lurch. Lurch. And uh, yeah. 
you know, so I got to meet all these guys. And then Tim Pace said, listen, I'm going to this um, Marine auction, some military auction. Do you want to have a look at some of these lights that I'm looking at? And I said, what are they? And he said, no, they're called Marine Beacon Lights. And I said, yeah, let's, let's go check them out. And uh, we took them over to a company called Atlantis Lighting in Virginia. And they were actually, Marine Beacon Lights were 13 volt ACLs. And they ran in series of eight. And um, we strung them up and they were the exact same size as a Parkin uh, fixture. So I asked them to put them in park cans. So they did. And we filled the room with smoke, turned them on, and we thin beams that were amazing. I mean, the ships used to use them to come into port with, right? And it was the first time, you know, that I've ever seen a beam like that. And I thought it was very important, you know, creating geometry with my lighting to have these lights in a system and, uh, I created the first lighting rig with these ACLs uh, or dubbed Marine Beacon Lights. Um, because Atlantis was, you know, forthcoming and letting me uh, use their facility, they were also designing a light show for Little Feet at the time and said, would you mind if we use these lights for that? And I said, no, go right ahead. You know, I, said, I didn't care. And then when Rush started headlining and we swapped over to using C-Factor, um, we were using C-Factor and National Sound together. C-Factor, you know, I asked them to take the, uh, the ACLs and, and put them in fire cans. And I had a, a whole console made of a pin matrix console so I could control them um, individually. They thought I was insane. And I forced them to put transformers on each one of them so I can take a group of eight and control it as eight individual fixtures with these transformers. And then I built this, you know, they've custom built, um, you know, Doc Colliday and uh, Paul Edwards and all the guys that worked there at the time with Bob C's uh, overseeing it all, built this pin matrix where you can do subgroups, chases, you could take eight group, you know, or 10 groups of eight ACLs and turn them into 80 individual lights and use them in any groups or combinations you can see fit and you can chase them individually make it rain ACLs. Well, you know, it, 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 C factor, a lot of people don't realize because, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're not around really. Um, but, you know, they were very innovative, you know, even before, you know, light and sound design, you know, they, they, they were right. one of the original companies that, that kind of figured out, you know, touring lighting. And, and how to make it work and how to make it cool. And, you know, companies like, you know, Light and Sound Design and, you know, Morpheus and, you know, Shoko did lights to, you know, to some extent back in those days, but it would mainly crank up towers with park hands on it. But a lot of the early innovation came out of Bob C. Would you, oh, would you well, agree? Yeah. I mean, like Bob C was in, in integral. I mean, Bob C, Bob Goddard, all those guys that were down there that were creating light shows for the Fillmore East and, you know, C-Factor, they, they did a lot of business in Broadway, the Broadway Playhouses in New York. They had that market locked up. And at one point in time in the 70s, you know, all you would ever see is C-Factor orange cases. They were out there with right. everyone, with Aerosmith. Right. They were out there with every, you know, like so many bands. You would see that C-Factor black and orange case. And, uh, you know, that's when I first, you know, when I first started getting involved with, with C-Factor and Elliot Crow. 
in the early days, I, I figured, you know, this is a great company to have because they would build custom effects for me and they would store them. So when Rush, you know, went to one tour to the next, I could pick and choose what I wanted to use. They would build me these custom pieces and they would store them for any time I wanted to use it. Nice. So for, you know, a good couple decades, I mean, it worked against me in a way because if I, when I went out to do other bands later on, like the Queens like uh, empire tour, you know, people were like, well, you know, if you use Howard, you're going to use C factor because that's the only company he uses. But, and you know, at the time they would deliver things that no one else would. And I could make the shows look surreal, which I, which I tried to do the best way possible. Um, I was one of the last people to use automated fixtures because I wanted to exhaust the gambit with uh, theatrical lighting. And, you know, the only, there was a couple of people doing it. My, you know, person I looked up to was Chip Monk because he blew me away with the Rolling Stones. When he put a mirror downstage on an angle and took super troopers and lined the back, put them on the floor of the venue and aimed them into this mirror from the rear of the stage in the downstage mirror and lit the band, which they would just light up out of nowhere with, wow. these, with, with these, excuse me, with these beams of light coming down. That's it was, incredible. Uh, yeah, I, it was I, I do remember, I've seen pictures of that. And you know, tell me, you know, you know you, you've, you've worked, for, you know, and there's not many people that have worked for one artist for so long and have done so many projects. And, you know, being a creative director, lighting designer, you know, visual artist, how difficult is it to recreate yourself, you know, every, every tour, every record cycle? Because, you know, you want to be different. You don't want the last show to look like, you know, the show or whatever, you know. To, tell me about uh, the challenges of, of, of reinventing yourself over and over again. So you keep your, this artist rush looking fresh and interesting and modern and, and you know, something you're happy with. Well, you know, something... That's a good question because I had to, you know, being a musician, I understood their music. I really got into what they were doing and they had, you know, such, they were like, they would challenge themselves on every album and they were such professional musicians and they would always like reach to the next level. Um, and I knew that I had to reach to the next level with them. I, I just couldn't, you know, settle for the same old, same old. And, when they came out with a new album and it sounded so different, I had a mirror image that with a lighting system. And I actually really enjoyed it because I would get ideas from just going different places, looking at weather conditions, you know, being looking at architecture of buildings. And it would, you know, like one day I was sitting up north at a, at a cottage relaxing and I saw these wind chimes hanging and I was staring at them and I said, you know, that would be great if I could create video columns like wind chimes and put them on the stage and then light around it. And, uh, you know, I did. And it, it blew, it blew me away. I had a hard time convincing the band because there were gaps between it. You know, and they kept saying, well, what about, you know, these holes in the, between the screens? What are you going to see? I said, your eye will fill it. I had some really good conversations with those guys. Getty Lee, myself, and, um, you know, we would bring on um, animators. Um, my, my, my friend, Norm Stengel at the time, he came on board. He had a company that was, uh, he worked for a company called Nelvana Films and later Spin Productions. And 
these uh, companies were, were animation houses and they would do everything from cartoons to, to, to motion pictures. So we used them, uh, we used to have meetings and brainstorm ideas. And that's what I loved about the Rush collaboration was that Getty would take the bull by the horns, he would spearhead it and uh, he would run with the ball with us. And then we would add our, our expertise to it I would always make sure the colors of the, the videos that we created and the stage lighting would blend so that it would become seamless. And later on, as the years went by, Getty's younger brother, Alan, grew up and became a producer of videos. And then him with his, with his partner, Dale Heslip, the two of them came to the table and we all started creating these amazing collaborations and it worked so well. So, for the first, let's say, 20 years of Rush, it was a lot of work to come up in fresh ideas, but I managed to come up with fresh ideas every tour. And, you know, it, would, it was a true experimentation. It was what I called performance art with lighting choreography. Nice. And then, you know, it, it must have been exciting because you, you, were, you were one of the first designers to really seriously implement video into your shows. Um, you know, the early days when you, you, there was either projection or, or you know, a very simple, uh, you, know, you know, screens, you know, I mean, there was no way to, you know, the early shows, you know, they weren't great because of, because of the brightness of, uh, of the projection. But you, you, you guys were the one of the first ones that, you know, I remember seeing that uh, had, had content and shows. Well, I actually created my own nightmare with that because, um, well, the first time we ever used it was trying to make the, uh, the owl from fly by night fly. And, uh, we used Kodak SAV projectors to do that. And that was our, that was pretty standard. You know, that was pretty, uh, what I call pedestrian, but at the same time, it looked amazing because no one was doing it. Yeah. And then, um, later on, I, I, I bit off a bit more than I could chew when I came up with the concept of, um, you know, IMAX came out with this huge screen concept. And I said, you know, it would be nice if we could do film, like an IMAX film. And then I got into the research of it to find out that it's proprietary and no one can take an IMAX projector on tour. There's just too many hours to align it and set it up and maintain it. So I went to this company called Associates in Farron in New York City, this guy Brent Farron. And um, he said, well, let's use three 35 mil projectors and we'll run them in tandem and we'll give you that IMAX look. Well, little did I know what a nightmare that would turn out to be because one of the things that uh, I discovered in the rehearsal stages of this is that unless you have encoders to make sure every motor on every projector runs at the same speed, you're gonna lose sync with all your projectors and all your video. And it's never gonna be, you're gonna lose time and nothing's gonna be in sync and you have to, you know, put a click track to it and you have to make sure everything is perfect. So we had to add encoders and you know, that was like, you had to fly them in, fly personnel in and make sure that, it could, and then finally when it was working, that was great until one day something would break, like a film would break. And you know, you'd see like hand puppets and shadows of people trying to fix it. Oh, but for no. the most part, it looked pretty spectacular. You know, we, we, we did that a lot. Uh, before we actually went to, until video saved us. 
you know, because I remember many days off spending, spent counting sprocket holes so that we could align things back normally again. Uh, innovation can be painful. Oh yeah, well, it was. Um, I, I, I do remember, uh, I think it was Red Barchetta was one of the, the oh, early yeah. songs that had, 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 great, had great content in it, but yeah. Oh, yeah you know, we had, I, we, I also read a really interesting uh, quote from you, which, uh, which, uh, which I, I firmly believe in. And, and, and you said, you know, the most powerful cue is the blackout. Absolutely. And I really, really relate to that and, and love that, you know. Um, tell me why, tell me, tell me, define that statement. Because, you know, when I design my lights, it's designed to emotion. And I have passion when I design my lighting. And, you know, there's not a lot of designers out there that I think show too much um, passion in their lighting, uh, other than theatrical designers. Um, artists that I looked up to, Pink Floyd, I looked up to them, you know, they put on an amazing show. People like Blue Man put on an amazing show. Uh, but I love drama. Mm -hmm. And in order to create that drama, there was nothing better that I loved to do than to have a stage just glowing with lights. And at a certain point in time, hitting a blackout, right, with the band simultaneously, and then highlighting a spot by itself without any other light after the blackout. And that blackout was like an exclamation point of drama before you load up Alex to do a guitar solo that led you into the next part of the song. Mm. So to me, it was like switching a television station, like click, all of a sudden this happens and no one you know, is ready for it. Especially when you go to the black and then hit an explosive and come back in. It's like, it'll, it'll jump you out of your seat, you know? Yeah, I, I love the the less is more, you know, yeah. theatrical, dramatic aspect of lighting. You know, you, you see too many shows where, you know, they just blow everything out in the first song. And you know, where do you go from there? There's just nowhere to go. You know, I, yeah. I, I like seeing shows where certain lighting instruments, they're used for one song, one part of a song. This is it. This is the reason why this kit is here, because it's to emphasize this one section, you know, and you just don't keep using it over and over again. Um, another thing I want to ask you about, which I think is a great story. I mean, you know, people know you for Rush, but, you know, you've, you've spent most of your career with them and they tour a lot and they, do, they used to do another record and go right out again, but you did find time for other projects, maybe when Rush wasn't working. And I know you talked about Queensryche, but I really love the Alex Van Halen story that you told oh, yeah. me. And I know, I know that, you know, Alex, who's, who's kind of like the guy who's in the vision, creative kind of guy in the band. And he, he really wanted you to work for Van Halen, didn't he? Well, you know, I didn't know that at first because, you know, he was taking, I got a call from Scotty Ross one day and Scotty had said to me, he goes, Hey, Howard, uh, do you want to put a design into Van Halen? And I said, put a design in. What do you mean, Scotty? And he's like, you know, submit a design. They're, they're doing this tour. And it was, it was for Van Halen 3. And it was a new lead singer, Gary Sharon. And um, they had a concept of a circus tent. And to me, you know, circus tent sounded kind of boring. But I said, you know, I'll, I'll hear it out. What do I need to do? And he said, you need to do a design and send it in. And I said, well, I won't do that. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't design for free. 
I said, you know, if I'm going to design something, um, I have to, you know, I have to get paid for it. I'm not going to submit a design. And he goes, well, you probably won't get it then. He goes, I just want to make sure that you knew that, that, you know, I have to tell you right now, if you don't send something in, you're not going to get it. I said, okay, sorry. And I hung up. And I guess um, over the course of the next couple of days, Alex Van Halen said, hey, where's that design from the guy from Rush? And then Scotty told him, oh, no, he's not sending a design to you. And he goes, what do you mean he's not sending a design? And this is coming from Scotty anyway. So Scotty said, uh, no, Alex Van Halen is pissed off, calls me up. And he goes, he's pissed off that you wouldn't send a design in. And now he wants to see you up at 5150. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, can you get on a plane like tomorrow? And I said, yeah, are you going to fly me first class or business? He goes, yeah. I, I said, okay, I'm there. He goes, but listen, Howard, I can't guarantee you what's going to happen. And he said he wasn't real happy that you didn't send a design. And he was kind of insulted that you passed. And now, you know, I don't know if he's going to hit you in the face, punch you. Do, I, don't, I don't know. But, you know, he says, uh, if you want to come, check it out. I said, sure, I'll come check it out. Cause, you know, I don't care. You know, and uh, so I had to fly up to 5150, which I did. And I went up to the studio and there was Alex, you know, he was on some kind of a racing car video game and he, you know, he made me wait for about a half hour. And then I came in to meet him and he just looked at me and he said, uh, so you're the fuck that refused Van Halen. And I went, uh, yeah. He goes, yeah, tell me why. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Would Van Halen come to Toronto and do a free show for me? And he went, fuck no. I said, well, that's why. I said, I don't work for free. I said, you want something spectacular? He goes, listen, I've seen your shows with Rush and you use some of those gay colors like pink. You're not going to use those on Van Halen. I said, well, I said, I'll work it out. You know, you don't have to worry about that. And he goes, and I see you're married. And I go, yes. He goes, yeah. He said, so uh, when you're out doing lights for Van Halen, you're in the front of house and I do my drum solo and I'm like wandering around backstage after it's over while Eddie's doing his, you know, his, his guitar solo and I'm off the drum kit and you know, your wife is out here with you if you're married. What happens if I start like come on to her or something? I said, that would never happen. He goes, well, what if it did? I said, I'd punch you out. And he goes, hey, Okay, I like that answer. I like you. He goes, you're hired. And that was it. Oh, man. You know, uh, it was kind of weird. I'm, I'm speechless. I mean, what, what <laughs> do you, uh, only, you know, in our, only in our industry do, 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 do people behave like that. I, 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 and I have to say something. Like, I really loved Alex Van Halen. I loved Eddie. I mean, those guys were sweethearts when I worked for them. They were really, really nice guys. And... Um, the other thing was, is that they had never recorded live uh, set tapes for anyone. So, you know, I, I said, listen, I program at night. I said, I don't do anything. You know, it's like I need to have some reference material of what you're going to play live so I can program properly. And uh, they said, well, we don't do that. I said, well, you're going to have to do that. I said, it'll be a, it'll, I'll create a much better show if you give me the, you know, the ammunition. And, you know, actually for that tour, I used West Sun for production and they did give me the material at night. And then they were friends with a gentleman named Mike Post, 
who I guess does the, uh, he's the musical director for Law and Order, you know, and I oh, guess, right. was, and they sent him to Warner Brothers Studios in the middle of the night to check out what was going on while I was <laughs> into the programming sessions with, uh, with Van Halen. And, um, you know, my assistant looked over at me one point in time, um, his name is Tim Grievous. I used him on a lot of, you know, shows for uh, programming. And he goes, hey, there's some guy in the dark just sitting, he's been sitting there for two hours. I don't know who he is, but he's not moving, he's not doing anything. I said, well, find out, bring him over here. So he goes down and he gets him and he goes, oh, hi, I'm a friend of Eddie's, Mike Post. He goes, uh, I'm just checking out what you guys are doing and it's amazing. I, I said, well, great, I'm glad you like it. He goes, yeah, you know, Eddie just told me to come down and check it out, so here I am. So we had a lot of, you know, fun on Van Halen. It was, it was a great, a great show. Yeah, well, you know, you've, you've, you've done lots of good stuff and great stuff, pardon yeah. me. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, we know what happened with, uh, uh, you know, the band and, you know, they're not working yeah. anymore. Um, but you've got, uh, and you've, and you've had, even when Rush was still going, you've got a, you've got a really great production company called Production Design International, PDI for short. Uh, you and I, uh, you know, had the, uh, I had the pleasure of touring with you earlier this year with Tool. Uh, mm -hmm. You put some lasers out there. Um, great kit, great crew, great support. Thank you. Um, so, you know, wonderful experience. And, and I hope to, you know, get into it more with you. But, uh, you know, to tell me how you, you started a company. It was, was it basically just to support your tours or what, what made you start a company? I always wanted to have um, equipment that people couldn't afford. It's like everybody was saying it's too much money. It's too much money. So I was figuring, how can I open something up? And, you know, I was using Laser Media, which was an amazing company out of L.A. Yeah, I remember um, them. A guy named Ed Oswax was the president. Um, we used Laser Media. And I, I wanted to become Laser Media Canada. But what I didn't know was they had, a, they had an architectural firm that they used to do a lot of theme parks up in Canada. And the, uh, one of the main architects brother, um, was part of this, you know, uh, design team and they promised him the laser media distributorship. So they said the only way that you can invite us to come work with you is to bring in Kevin McCarthy, this guy from, uh, you know, this small company that I never heard of. And I was involved with a, a uh, public company that was called Laser Light Effects. And I sort of convinced them to bring Kevin McCarthy on board so we could use laser media, uh, you know, software and equipment. And then I would have access to it. And we brought in tours. We did Deep Purple in the later days with, with that. So that was my first endeavor into lasers. And when the public company went sour and everybody was, you know, got greedy, I moved on and started uh, this other company, Production Design International, with my partner, Brian Beggs. And uh, that worked out quite well. Um, and I just kept growing it. This gave me the, uh, the vehicle to do other tours. Um, in 1986, I was asked to design the Def Leppard Hysteria Tour. It was the, in the round. 
And uh, Faye McMahon, who, who normally designed Def Leppard, I believe was out Famous with, Faye. Yeah, and he was out with George Michael. And Peter Mensch called me up and said, can you do this? And so I put a, together a design again with lasers in under the stage. And we actually hid the lasers and we had trap doors for them to come out of. Charlie Hernandez was the production manager on that. And uh, I think Billy Robert Scoville was doing sound. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, we rehearsed for about three weeks in Glen Falls, New York. And that was a, pretty much a, a great experience. So I had you know, a lot of different experiences between Def Leppard, Queensryche, I did Tesla. You know, uh, we were out on tours, um, in between rush tours. So I stayed pretty busy and plus did special events and a whole lot of the other things, right? Yeah, lasers have, have, have come so far. I mean, you know, let's go back to, you know, hysteria, you know, underneath the stage. I mean, a laser was the size of, of a four by eight sheet of plywood. You know? it <laughs> yes. was, and, and, and it had to be water cooled. So you had to have a water feed going to them all times. I, I you remember had to have, my, yeah. my early experiences with lasers. I mean, it was, it was, it was hard work. You know, yeah. it was, it was, it was, you know, and they were finicky and, and they were hot and you could only do certain, you know, green colors with, you know, maybe a, if you're lucky, you can do a sine wave, you know, but uh, it's, you know, lasers have gone, have come so far, you know, to, to the point where it's the size of a par 56, you know, or whatever, you know, they're really, <laughs> yeah, they're, I know. so, so uh, where were you in the, in the, in you know, innovation of, of, of lasers where, 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 you know, did you start, did you get in there early? I mean, yeah, did you I mean, take that journey? Yeah, I did take that journey. And um, I, I took that journey in tandem with a lot of other technicians. And um, actually, um, I still have working for me today, John Popowitz, who was uh, at Laser Light Effects. And um, we, we had come up with, when they first came out with, um, the early um, lights that had moving mirrors, mm. we actually put laser scanners in those lights to get you know laser effects in the in the moving mirror coming coming through. Wow! And uh, we, you know we we continued to experiment with that even you know on the Rush tour when I in Test for Echo when I actually put laser scanners into radar dishes on stage. I mean there's there was a lot of innovation that was happening. Um, the old laser systems, there were gas lasers. They were at first strictly argon, which is your, you know, cyan color. And yes, you had to have water. You had to be an electrician and a plumber to deal with lasers. They were <laughs> very, very difficult. And it was ironic. It's the same place where you would have 480 volts converted through, you know, through a transformer to what you needed, 220. And you would have water and power converging in the same cavity, which was unheard of. So yeah, it was kind of uh, serious. And the first laser guy I ever met was uh, Dr. David Afonte, who worked for Blue Oyster Cult. And uh, he was up there in a white lab coat every day. And that sort of intrigued me. And that got me really into lasers. And uh, I haven't stopped, you know, and in this company, Production Design International, myself and Brian, I'm, really built it with our solid team behind us to try to uh, service, you know, the tours. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, we're on hold right now and we're trying to survive and we're, we're taking steps to consolidate 
um, into our warehouse and we're going to run our whole shop out of our warehouse now. Wow. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're doing what you have to do to, you know, to, to stay afloat. Um, but you know, laser wise, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you don't go online and, and buy your lasers and have them sent to you. I mean, well, you, you know, so you, 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 you can, you can, you, you can, can, but you know, you, you guys, I know you, you guys modify chassis, you guys do whatever you need to do to, to, you know, to make it work for the, you know, the application at hand, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, t- well, t- tell me, tell me a little bit about that. We have good people, you know, like Justin Perry and William Venner down at um, Pangolin that are geniuses when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, with our, with our team, there's a lot of great laser people. Um, you know, LaserNet is another great company. Um, you know, uh, we collaborate with a lot of different companies and, you know, ER lasers, I, you know, we deal with laser fantasy, um, a lot of people. I mean, we try to keep a friendly attitude. I don't look at them as other companies, as competitors, as much as uh, resources, you know, for assistance when we need something that is out of the wheelhouse. And in the meantime, we have an R and D department here where we can design things and come up with concepts as you saw that we did for you just a little while ago um, to try to put something together that's really powerful in a small chassis. And um, I think we'll just keep that going as long as we can, provided the industry comes back and I'm hoping it will. And I have faith that it will. And that's why I'm supporting this, um, you know, um, we make events um, hashtag that's happening and uh, you know we're, we're trying to do a bunch of things up here with um, red alert restart so all these things if you do hashtag red alert restart or you know hashtag we make events you'll be able to see what's going on right now and support people like ourselves that are out of work that are not getting any business right now and uh, you know it's quite concerning to many people and to I want to support that make sure everybody's aware that as we uh, create shows we're the first in and last out but unfortunately with COVID-19 you know we're out and we're the last to come back we're the yeah. first we're the first to go and the last to come back very yeah. similar it's kind of an ironic yeah yeah it's uh you know I, I I've been you know, like I have this discussion with everybody and, and, you know, we'll just keep an eye on sports, you know, you know, yeah. a lust for that. And I think if they can accommodate an audience for, for sporting events, you know, I think we're next in line, but you know, it's also down to, and I've said it once and I'll say it again, you know, you know, the vaccine. Yeah. You know, luckily there's a lot of optimism in regard to the vaccine. Um, you know, everybody's in their different phases of, uh, uh, testing. Um, but I'm, I'm one of the people that is optimistic because I have to be, I have to be optimistic. I, 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 for me to even just to survive every day, I have to, I have to feel optimistic. Um, I'm we all do. We yeah, all by, do. By, by, by spring, hopefully we'll have a, a widely distributed vaccine and we can start paying attention to, to, you know, doing things again, whether Absolutely. they're small, whether, you know, 
I doubt, you know, Roger Waters or whomever is going to, you know, roll out the door in the spring with a huge production because, you know, we have to get a, an idea of what the, you know, the ticket purchasing, you know, audience is going to do, you know. Um, I think there'll be a desire and, and, a, and a lust for, for live shows. People love it, you know. I mean, it, it never stops amazing me how people just keep coming back. They just love live shows. You know, oh, and, well, and, and it's going to, you know, we got to have it back. We will have it back. I'm, I am convinced that it will come back. It's just a matter of when. And, um, you know, just, we'll just have to hang on. And uh, as professionals, we have to support whatever we can support to make sure we can come back and work. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's why I got involved with this. And uh, we'll see. I am very, I, yeah, I am very positive and up tempo on the fact that yes, we will come back. If right. not, I'm going to have to look for another career. <laughs> oh, it's going to come back. Yeah, the desire for it is just as powerful for for sports, live sports. The you know, I, I'm I know people, dozens of people who just always love to go to live performances. And um, it's going to be to the point where the public's going to demand it. It's going to happen one way or another, just because people need it. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, agreed. It's like we're all we're all quarantined. We're all getting antsy. We're all, you know, it's like it's funny. I was I was uh, remembering that you know Mad Max happened in 2021, and I'm hoping that will not happen here. No, but, uh, you know, it's like, but it's. You know, it's a people are getting a little bit bent out of shape because they've been cooped up for a while. Yeah. So it's our business that entertains them, even through the depression, the people craving entertainment. And yeah. that's why we're doing this podcast. And that's why I'm trying to reach out to people. You know, we we've been in it a long time. We want to stay in it as, as long as we can. And uh, yeah, it's 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 tough. I mean, it's you know, and, and, and I think about the situations, no matter who you are. You know, the, you know, there's a difference between, you know, a, you know, a guitar tech who's sitting at home, you know, trying to make his savings stretch, uh, you know, and a vendor. Um, I'm not going to speak for you, but, you know, vendors have, you know, millions of dollars owed to banks for their equipment. You know, can you imagine a video company, especially who, who owns, you know, $5 million worth of LED or Absolutely. projectors, you know, I mean, the, uh, it's a very anxious time, you know, so I think this industry has got to come back. It's just got to come back. You know, there's just too much riding on it, you know, not just, not just, you know, someone who wants to buy a ticket to see Kid Rock, but, you know, you know, that, that, that vendor who's, who's maybe not, you know, uh, one of the main, you know, 10 or 20 players in the industry, but, you know, somebody who's invested his life savings and, and you know, maybe, one small line array system and you know and a few projectors or whatever i mean that that's that's real stuff to them and uh you know you know i think about those people too yeah you know, we and, think and, about and it. we got to help them you know and, 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 and when we do come back you know we have to make sure people make money you know i'm I've always cognizant yeah. of the fact that everybody's got to make money for this industry to thrive and and we just need to you know, we can't go out there with our knives sharpened and, and tear people apart. You know, we, no. need to, we need to just make sure all is well for everyone. And, you know, 
from your lips to the higher power. Yes, I hope so. You know, because we really need to all hope that. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's just, it's, just a tr it's tragic. I call this whole thing the tsunami of ignorance because it just came so fast and we weren't prepared for it. So right. let's get out of it if we can. And, um, you know, we'll do, I'll do my part to help get out of it if we can. Yeah. Well, between a, you know, a vaccine and, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the election in America coming mm -hmm. in November, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a wave of positivity and, and people working hard. Mm. But, you know, not that I, not that I'm not concerned about COVID, but I, I want to, I want to ask you another question. Um, how much do you miss or how much do you love or want or desire to, to, to design another rush show? I mean, well, you know, that's, that, was yeah. so, that was a part of your life where every, every year and a half, two years, you were, you know, you were, you're, you're, you're doing one show, but you're thinking about the next one. What are we going to do next time? There is no next time now. And, and, and there's gotta be this, this longing or there's something missing inside you, you know, when it, when it, when it comes to it. And that is there, what do you have to say about that? It's, it's like, I know that it's not going to happen. So I have to um, accept that. Yeah. And what I am hoping for is the ability to design for another group one day. And, um, you know, you know, it's, it's a different world now than what we had, you know, with the three guys in rush were amazing. They were like the most incredible musicians and people as people the nicest guys i i've ever worked with right and i have to be grateful and thankful that i was able to work for them as long as i had which was over four decades which is pretty amazing when you think about it mm. i mean you know I, know I know steve cohen has worked for billy joel longer than i have worked for rush and it's people like that there's not a lot of us out there but you know the guys in Rush were gentlemen, a lot of humility there, also a lot of ego, but you know, you need that ego to, to move to the next level. And, uh, well, they, 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 they think the world of you. I mean, I, I know that from yeah. what I've read and, you know, what I've you know, seen them, you know, when they speak of you, you know? uh, we were sort of like family. So we still are. I mean, I still talk with them. We yeah. still sort of, you know, chat back and forth. And, uh, you know, it's, it was so many years of amazing times. Like we don't have time in this, in this podcast to go over everything, but, you know, my life with them has been incredible. You know, there's been ups, there's been downs and uh, sideways, which is Pretty, pretty uh, incredible. I mean, like, yeah. I have, I have been a tour manager, a tour accountant, lighting designer, concierge, maitre d, <laughs> all of those things. Bartender. You know? Yeah, bartender. <laughs> I, you know, I've become like, you know, through them, I've become, you know, very educated in wine, and uh, you know, yeah, they're, they're famous for their, for their, for their. Oh, they love love their of, of good glass of wine. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, you know, and they were well deserved of their success. And I'm just hoping that maybe one day, you know, one of them will go back and do something. But, you know, 
we have to move forward. And uh, right now with uh, the COVID has put a big damper on a lot of things. Yeah. So, you know, I'm looking to create an art exhibit somewhere and maybe, we, you know, with laser art of some sort, try to find a curator, try to get a theme and do a, a laser and lighting, you know, art exhibit of, of some sort. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking outside the box. And as far as design work, I have so many design concepts in my head for um, designs I never used that I came up with for Rush that were aborted for other reasons, you know? So I'm, you know, I'm not short on ideas for, for artistic uh, content. Uh, well, you, you come from that, uh, that era um, where you had to learn to use less, you know? A lot, of, a lot of the young LDs that make it in the industry now you know, you know, they're, you know, they're handed a big budget and, and, and it's just, you know, there's just too much sometimes, you know, I've, 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 I've seen shows where, and mainly the, probably the big pop diva shows where it's just, there's just way too much going on all at once. You, you, you can't absorb it, you know, and it's just, you know, well, I, don't know. You know. I, I, I appreciate, you know, the designers of your era and yourself, you know, I, I, when, when I think of lighting, I think of you and I think of Leroy Bennett and I think of, you know, the Mark Brickman, Pink Floyd shows. And, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, that's just, maybe it's, maybe that's, you know, who I am or, you know, what I learned to appreciate, but that's what I think of. No, all those people are, you know, worthy. I mean, it, it's funny, you know, when, uh, when I was doing Rush and Roy Bennett was down in uh, the Washington DC area doing a band called Face Dancer way back when. And, you know, so yeah, all these guys are very innovative. I mean, Tobias Rylander is another guy who, you know, probably, I don't even know if he knows me or not, but I respect what he does with um, the 1975, you know, it's like, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty uh, innovative designer and he worked for Leroy Bennett as well. So, you know, I don't. I look at all my uh, my peers um, with respect and not with envy, and I think that's the best way to be. And um, I would love to move forward. I have passion and and drive to make things look amazing. And the biggest tour that I ever packed up was eight trucks. And you know, I'm the I'm a, a fan of less is more. And I think when you see the industry coming back it will be less is more. And I think I'm ready. <laughs> uh, that, that would be great. That'd be great. Yeah. And, and you know what? And, and you know, we're talking, we've been talking about design so much. We haven't even talked about, you know, operating that much. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you, to watch you run lights, it was like watching Rick Wakeman play keyboards yeah. or something. You know, you were, you were so dramatic out there. I mean, you weren't just sitting there pushing buttons, you're moving, your arms are flying everywhere. You're talking to the spot operators and you're pointing and, and it, it was, uh, you know, it was like yeah. you, were, you were conducting the show in some respects. You I know? Think and, and, that's uh, exactly what I was doing. Actually, actually one day Billy Corrigan was sitting next to, <laughs> next to me at the lighting console. And after I'd finished a song, he gave me a high five because it was like so intense. It was doing Cygnus X1, but it was kind of funny. And, you know, when, when I run my show, I'm not cognizant of what I'm really doing. I know that I have passion for what I, I know. My board is set up so I have manual 
capabilities as well as computer capabilities. And I have a lot of keystrokes that do a lot of weird, wacky things that, uh, you know, I that come out of my head and that my programmers over the years, Matt Drusbick and Tim Grievous, and, you know, I, I put them through the ringer. I used to program my own shows and I found that when I got into a situation where there was a problem, I would lose my train of thought. And that's why I liked using independent programmers so they can fix the problem and I can go back and continue my train of thought because it's my train of thought is so avant-garde that, you know, I just need a handful of people to understand what I really mm. want to see as a vision and, and make it happen because I sort of think outside the box. I don't think uh, like a normal designer. I mean, Rod Stewart, when I did his tour in the round, you know, he, he never knew anyone's names, you know, very rarely. And one day he came up to me and tagged me on the shoulder and he, he called me light man. He went light man. He said, uh, I have to ask you a question. I said, what's that? And how to dress him as Mr. Stewart. That's what I was told. And uh, he said, every night, no matter what city I'm in, I'm sitting on the stage and I see these shapes and they're all around me. And no matter what city we're in, they're all in the same place. What is this? And I said, it's a look. And he goes, a look? What's a look? I said, you're sitting inside of a cage of light. It's like a, a cage around you and I'm lighting you up on the inside. And then he looked at me with a really strange look and he goes, am I not paying for these lights? And I said, yeah, you are. He goes, cut the artsy shit, put them on me, light me up. <laughs> wow. So that was one of the, that was a kind of a, you know, oh, okay, there you go. Cut the artsy shit, light me up. Yeah. It's ego over art. <laughs> But, you know, but I had the opportunity to work with some really great, like David Bowie. I, I, I worked with him once with um, Laura Frank. And, uh, you know, I had to create these festival shows where it was like Blue Man Group, David Bowie. So I had to work with all the LDs. And I had to design a global rig for like Area 1, Area 2. And I worked with, with Live Nation and uh, Jake Berry to, to put that together. I mean, I, I've done a lot under the radar that people really don't know. And... Um, I, I take pride in all those things. I guess that's why I got that Parnelli Award in 2014 because of all the crazy stuff that I had done over the years, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I mean, I, I hung out with some of the most incredible musicians, you know, I, I even got to do Chikoria once. Oh, and, wow. And I had Stanley Clark there and I had- uh, Return of you know, Forever. Frank Gambelli on guitar and Lenny White on drums. I mean, Jean-Luc Ponty on violin. It was insane. Like wow. probably half the people that are watching this don't know those people, but they're amazing jazz musicians. And uh, I remembered um, that, you know, Getty used to get a little nervous when his idols used to come by and watch the show. And uh, one day I figured I have to ask Stanley Clark, who at this rehearsal was playing an I think it was a Japanese bass. It was like, it wasn't like a Fender or any of the, uh, the go-to basses that I ever saw. So I, first I said to him, hey, Stanley, um, you know, what's with the, uh, the Japanese bass? And he's like, why? Does it sound bad? And I went, no, no, I'm just wondering why you don't use a Fender or something of, of that nature, like a precisioner. And he went, oh, it's because I have too many great guitars of mine gotten stolen over the years and I don't care about this one. I said, so, and then I wanted to ask him another question because, yeah, I went, so 
you know, what happens when one of your idols comes into the, you know, and I said, do you get nervous? And he goes, no, no. I said, well, what happens? He goes, I just, he just goes, I just rise to the next level. <laughs> and I'm thinking rise to the next level. That's a great answer, you know. Yeah, we all that have to do the that. Best answer, yeah. you know. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's a crazy business. And I have respect for all the up and coming young lighting designers. There's, a, there's some great people out there um, that will, you know, emerge over the years. And, you know, they uh, may not have started the same way I have, but they definitely leaped in, you know, feet first and uh, take the bull by the horns. I remember when I designed Webster Hall in New York, Steve Lieberman was the in-house guy. And he had to deal wow. with all, all the stuff that I put in there to design. Wow. And a C-Factor light coordinator, which he hates me for to this day. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I see things a lot the same as you, you know, as far as, you know, nurturing the next generation. You know, I, I, you know, I, I think it's our, our, our duty, yeah. you know, to, to help the next generation coming in behind us, you know, whether it be, you know, any guidance or, or, you know, a pat on the back or, you know, just whatever, it'll help build their confidence, enable them, you know, whatever, you know, so I, I really appreciate that aspect, you know, view, you know, where you're, I'm not in competition with anybody, you know, I, no. I just, I just want everybody to do well, you know, um, yeah. that's really good. And, yeah, and that's, and that's the attitude you have to have. I mean, I inspire a lot of young people. I've had young people come up to my lighting consoles. I've had parents bring their kids up. You know, I've, I've inspired a lot of people. Unfortunately, there's some that I've inspired that um, wound up not with us anymore for whatever reason it was. I mean, I spent a lot of time with a lot of younger people, um, giving them hope and uh, support and steering them in the right direction. And um, a lot of them to this day have thank me. I mean, I, on my Facebook and LinkedIn pages, I'm always getting thanks from people who remembered, you know, um, nobody really helped me when I was young, you know, um, nobody said, you know, except for maybe Sean LaRoche by giving me the tools to move ahead. But really I'd never, nobody came to me as a, a guiding light. I had to create my own mentors and whether they know it or not, I, you know, I have. Yeah, well, you said it. You said it earlier, though. I mean, your generation invented the industry. We you know, did. There, were, there were there were nobody. There was nobody to look up to. You know, for for me, you know, I mean, I, I look up to, you know, Bill Graham and, yeah. and and those guys. You know, that that's that's you know somebody I had to look up to. But you know, and you and you were, you mentioned Chip Monk earlier. But there there really weren't a lot. You know, you guys invented yeah. the industry, and 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 now now. Now you, you know, you're passing it on and, you know, people can look back and see how you did them. And, you know, it's just. That's what you have to do. I mean, you, you know, have to do, you know, it's, you can't be everybody. You can't be, you know, you can't have an ego that's huge because it'll destroy you. Yeah. Agreed. You know, and you have agreed. to be grateful, humble, have humility, which it's hard in yeah. this business, you know, it goes to your head quite, quite quickly. And it does. either you deal with it or you don't deal with it. And if you let it go to your head, you can get swayed off the path. And uh, it could be tragic, you know, it could be tragedy, or it could be excellence if you deal with it very, very well. 
yeah. and I'm trying to deal with it well, you know, and uh, I'm, I guess that's why I'm still here and I'm sitting at my desk, yeah. you know, um, in the next week or so, I think we're going to be moving out of this office into this warehouse space that I have. And that's my desk is going to be against a cement wall. Yeah. And all of this will be packed away in storage and uh, crossing my fingers that we could come out the other side. Well, I mean, you know, you, you were not, you and I were on the road together earlier this year when, when mm -hmm. the news of Neil passing. Um, so, you know, things can change like that. Oh, I know. You know, you know, uh, yeah. I, I know you guys as a, as a, as a group, we're, we're, we're keeping that on the down low Neil, that Neil was ill. I mean, Mm -hmm. We all we all knew that uh, uh, you know there was there was something going on you know you know there was rumors of arthritis this and that and the other but you know the real story came out you yeah. know that that uh, you know Neil was gravely ill and and uh, I kind of respect the fact that no one made a big deal out of it and kept it quiet and uh, but you know it's just yeah. just just going on what you said you know you know tragedy you know, happens you know? i know and i really respect the uh the guys in tool like danny carey and adam and all those guys were very consoling on that day when i was down there with everyone and um and all their wives they were like so amazing i was in tears most of that day and i had a runaway and i, I actually sat up in the seats in the arena by myself but you know my crew guys found me and then slowly you know i would get one of the wives would come up and it was like oh my god i've been caught crying oh <laughs> uh that's you know but it, yeah it was kind of a rough for a rough day a couple of days for me there well but, you know uh, i don't know uh, i don't know what to say but uh, like you were saying earlier we we do what we have to do now we we take the steps we need to take yep. and uh we're going to come back stronger because I, I, I feel, I feel that I'm probably going to be a much better production manager next year than I had been in the last few years. Just there's going to be this jolt of uh, refound youth and adrenaline in me. And uh, I think that's probably going to be true with you as well. Um, I, but, I already uh, have the adrenaline. I just, I have to calm my adrenaline down because I'm all pumped. You yeah, know, you are, you are, you are that guy. You are that guy. Yeah. But you know, I, I would love, love to see a, a design of yours out there on the road. I mean, that, that yeah. would be, that would be amazing. I'm not so sure you're going to be the maestro behind the console anymore. Yeah, but I'll but, create yeah, it. You know, but uh, I would, I would love to see a Howard Ungerleiter design out there, you know. Well, thank and, you. And, and hopefully next year we'll do some tool dates together. You know, yeah, you know, and I, awesome. I, I want to start a relationship with um, a deeper relationship with PDI. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's I know there's more to you than just lasers. You know, there's there's design, oh, yeah. there's spe other special effects that you you, you get into. Yeah, there, there is when we're good consultants in show creation. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. That, that's what I do. So, yeah. and you know, I have to have respect, you know, for like Mark Jacobson and those guys that are, and Breck Haggerty, all those guys out on tool. Plus my guys here, Scott Wilson and, uh, you know, uh, Brian Wilkinson. And I have nothing but great things to say about all my guys because Agreed. they're, they're good guys and they get the job done. So great team, great show. You know, I, I miss that show a lot. You know, yeah. I, I, I could, uh, I could work that show for a long time if you know what I mean. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just, you know, one of those gifts that I keep on giving. 
I was hoping that would happen too. That was like so good. And uh, I, I, I am very grateful to have rekindled my relationship with you and, and meet Matt as well. That was, I didn't even know that Matt was around and uh, this is good to know. He's an old, he's an old touring roadie. He's uh, oh, yeah. Matt's a dietitian now. Um, he okay. works more in the, uh, in a different field, but uh, he was a, a lighting guy and a carpenter yeah, well, and a guitar tech. He was out there for a long time. Started with lights. I did. Started with lights. Yeah. That's you, awesome. were, you, were, you worked for LSD as an icon tech. I think. did. Wow. <laughs> the old icons. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when you're talking about when Chris mentioned how you kind of innovated the idea of uh, lighting air. And yeah. one of the things I would do every once in a while when I was feeling spicy, even just on a club scene, and maybe I'd have, I don't know, 28, 34, you know, maybe 40 cans is I would do them without any gels and just point them <laughs> out. And just have these like bars of white light either going up or going down or up going across. And it was just like, boom, oh, yeah. boom, 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 you know, because it was all hair metal back then or whatever. So it worked. But oh, now I probably cool. got that from Chris and that probably came from you. So well, that's a very distinct memory in my life for sure. As long as it, you know, it does something to you internally, that makes me happy. Yeah, I mean, the thing, and, and this is just going back to the whole hopes that we get back out on the road and stuff. And music is, um, I mean, sports are emotional, but emotional and a very adrenaline kind of, I don't know, I don't want to use the word anger, but, you know, but music and live music is an experience. It's a visual, you know, it's a, it's a fresh thing. And it's emotional on a very more, on, on, on a level in your heart, right? And then you're taking the music you love and you're putting this visual and, you know, and it's someone like you that really turns the music into a vision, right? You know, it's almost like reading a book, right? You read a book and you create the own vision in your head. And then when you have an album, it's like, but when you see a live show, it fills those gaps. And because the artist's vision is there as, as, as well as yours. And it's just, it, you know, it's going to come back. And I think the passion for it and, and it's going to come back with a fury. And I love the whole idea. Less is more. And I think of Da Vinci's quote is that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I might've said that before, but I no, think that, it's, yeah, it's going to be wonderful. If you can bring drama back to lighting rather than all the, you know, we're, we're overstimulated and, you know, bringing back the drama and, and rekindling the emotion that's associated. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's one of the things that I really have respect for um, Mark Brickman because Mark Brickman um, did David Gilmore without video. And, you know, I love that because everyone is inundating people with video. It's become like watching television. Yeah. And, and when Mark did the last uh, Gilmore tour, and he, there was no video screen behind him. It was refreshing. It was actually, wow. You got to see these lights in a whole different way. And uh, I actually said to him, I said, that's amazing. You know, I said, and then there was a couple of songs where there was no smoke and I thought it was brilliant. And he said, that was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, the pleasure. yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I, I respect a lot of these people that are out there doing it. And uh, I hope to see them do more and to see you guys again. And, uh, I hope this is right. good, you know? Yeah, well, thank you, Howard. Um, uh, it's, it's been wonderful, you know. Uh, soon we'll be hopefully sitting in a Japanese restaurant together, you know, <laughs> staring at staring at the, the, the chef going, just let us have it. Yeah, that's right. That Can't was great. That, that was an awesome that. night. Yeah, Can't that was awesome. That. Me too. 
Cool. Well, thank you. And right. uh, you know, Matt, thanks for this. And uh, everybody out there, if, uh, if you like it, give us a review. Um, and uh, check us out when you can. That's great. I hope I, I hope I wasn't too technical and boring for these people out here. <laughs> that was wonderful. You, you, you paint a beautiful story, Howard. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome, Matt. Thank you for letting me have this time with you guys. Okay. Absolutely. Speak soon, Howard. We're going to work next year on Tool. We're going right, to. Cheers, man. Bye-bye. Right See you guys.